Hello, and welcome to An Intelligent Look at Terrorism, a podcast brought to you by Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, president of Borealis. And for those who have been following me over the past couple of years, you know that I have undertaken a number of interviews with individuals who work in the general field of terrorism. These people are very well known, some are less well known, and I've always felt it was a good idea to get opinions other than my own, of which I have many, as you have come to know over the past couple of years. But I do think it is really important to see what other people think. Uh, people who didn't necessarily work in security intelligence like me. Academics in some cases, uh, laypersons, uh, a whole range of people who have something interesting to say about the phenomenon of terrorism. For today's podcast, it's a little bit different in the sense that I was hoping to have with you a live or rather recorded interview with a man who is clearly, in my perspective, one of the giants, if not the giants, in terrorism studies for the past 50 years. But due to a series of technical problems, we had to do this a little differently. So we failed to actually record our our conversation, but this individual sent me a transcript of his thoughts on the questions that I had posed to him. So I'm going to read that transcript to you. Again, I, I apologize. It's not nearly as compelling or interesting as hearing my guest speak live, but it's the next best thing. And I just thought that his message and his scholarship and his findings have been so important over the past 50 years that I wanted to get this podcast done anyway, technical glitches notwithstanding. The individual I'm speaking about is David Rappaport. Let me tell you a story. A couple years ago, probably late 2000s, I was still working for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and I was invited, along with a few other Canadian colleagues, to Colorado Springs, which is the headquarters of NORAD, the North American Air Defense System. The Canadian-American Air Defense apparatus has been in place since the Cold War. For those of you too young to remember the Cold War, who weren't even born when the Cold War was around, this, of course, was a time fraught with tension between the Soviet Union and its satellites, and the United States, NATO, and its allies. And so NORAD was developed as essentially an umbrella, if you will, over North America in the event of a nuclear exchange between the Soviet Union and the United States. I don't, I'm not an expert on NORAD, I'm not an expert on air defense systems, but it was really cool to be in Colorado Springs and to be at the NORAD headquarters for this, this conference. It wasn't a defense conference, it was actually a conference on terrorism. And I went down as somebody who had looked at terrorism from the security intelligence perspective. I probably gave a talk on radicalization, I don't really remember. And one of the individuals who was also invited and who gave a talk was the aforementioned uh, David Rappaport. <laughs> David Rappaport is an, is an amazing, amazing man. I, I was thrilled to meet him. I was quite aware of his work before I had the pleasure of actually seeing him in person. Just give you a little bit of background on David. He was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on January the 7th, 1929. He's 91 years old and still as, as sharp as a tack and uh, a fascinating man. And he's currently a a professor emeritus at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. And his focus has been on on the study of terrorism. He didn't start out that way. David started out in a slightly different field. He was actually, if I can just find this here, he was actually uh, focused his initial studies on uh, the Bible. He taught courses on religion before turning to terrorism. And importantly, he is a founding and continuing editor on the journal Terrorism and Political Violence, which, if memory serves me correct, has got to be one of the oldest journals dedicated 
to the study of terrorism. As I said, I can't stress this enough. He's a fascinating man. I was introduced to him figuratively before I was literally introduced to him in Colorado Springs when I came across his theory of what he called the, the wave theory of terrorism. I've referred to this a lot in my blogs and in my podcasts, and I'm not going to go into too much detail. You, you can look it up. But essentially what David came up with, he looked at terrorism across the decades, going back to the late 19th century, and he was able to come up with this theory that terrorism actually has occurred in, in four distinct waves. Anarchist wave in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, a sort of anti-colonial wave after World War I, a, a socialist slash leftist wave in the 60s, 50s and 60s, and then the, the current religious wave, which dates back to the incredible year of 1979, which saw the trifecta of the Iranian Revolution in February, the takeover of the Grand Mosque in Mecca by some Islamist extremists in November, and of course the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in, in, in December, which led to the creation of Al-Qaeda, which, long story short, end up with 9-11, and here we are, as we often call it, in the post-9-11 period. So I had this long conversation with David, and as I said, it didn't work out for me to actually record it for a whole host of reasons, but I'm going to read to you what he what he wrote to me, because I asked him a couple of questions. And my first question was him, was, um, when did you start studying terrorism? And here was his answer. Machiavelli says that half our lives are determined by fortuna or accident, and that certainly explains how I got into the study of terrorism in 1970 in Canada. Ah, good old Canadian reference here and transform my academic life, which was initially dedicated to the study of political theory. He was in London, and I had to question him on this because I thought he meant London, Ontario, my hometown. And I was really proud for a second, but no, it was London, England. He was a graduate student in London in 1958, and a fellow student was, was impressed with his work and PhD dissertation, which dealt with how and why military forces overthrow their governments. Twelve years later, this friend, this fellow student, ended up working for CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and asked him to organize a lecture series on, on the subject that he had not published on. And David chose to look at the history of assassination, which he says helped him to understand those who produce a coup and then assassinate the government leader or let the person live. So why do people sometimes kill these people? Why do they let them live? And he, as he says it, and I'm going to quote here, while I was giving the lectures, an unusual event occurred. The Quebec Liberation Front, the FLQ, Le Front de Libération du Québec, assassinated Deputy Premier and Labour Minister, uh, tra Transport Minister, sorry, Pierre Laporte in Quebec. And of course, they, they took, uh, they took uh, James Cross, who was the British Consul Montreal hostage. He was actually found alive. And so David felt he had to discuss the relationship between assassination and terrorism. And as he says it, the lectures caught the attention of the media, especially after they were published, because terrorism had just become global again as the third or new left wave, those waves I talked about, had emerged. And there'd been no discussion on terrorism for decades, according to David. The media would not let him go, and he was constantly on the radio, TV, and asked to write numerous newspaper articles. So that's how we got involved in terrorism. This paragon of terrorism studies in the United States and worldwide started in terrorism because of a terrorist attack in Quebec. The 1960s, from 63 onward until 19, the October crisis in 1970 was a decade, of, almost a decade of extreme turmoil in Canada, especially Quebec with the FLQ, carried out numerous bombings, mailbox bombings, all types of things, ended up killing six people before they killed Pierre Laporte. And this resulted in uh, essentially the prime minister at the time, Pierre Trudeau, father of the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, declaring martial law. He, he invoked the War Measures Act. 
and suspended civil liberties for a period of time to crack down on terrorism. And the fact that David's career was launched by a Canadian event kind of makes me smile as a Canadian, right? You know, we get dismissed a lot, or not dismissed, we kind of get ignored as a lot as Canadians. So to see that the a man of this stature actually got looking at terrorism because of us, I, 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 kind, of, I kind of forget about that. So I then asked him about the wave theory that I alluded to earlier. And I said, well, why don't you start thinking of the wave theory? And he says, uh, it's actually another Canadian reference. He says, I started thinking of the wave theory about the same time as I gave the Canadian lectures. The wave theory is related to the view that the younger generation sometimes views the political world in a radically different way than the rest of society. And he published a 1970 study comparing two periods in U.S. history. The first was the what he calls the extraordinary opposition to the Mexican-American War in 1846. And the second was the American, the incredibly negative reaction in American society to the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. The Mexican War, he says, was over in less than two years, and the younger generation's resistance subsided. But the Vietnam case lasted for more than a decade, and the younger generation turned to terrorism in many countries in the Western world, and it soon became a global phenomenon. At the time, he says, we were witnessing the third period of global terror, but he had not developed this notion of the wave theory just yet. Quote, while I stayed deeply involved in history of terrorism and mentioned waves many times, it was not until 9-11 that I developed the concept and popularized it. Three months after Al-Qaeda's 9-11 attack, he published the fourth wave, September 11th in the history of terrorism in the journal Current History. And the editor of that journal told, told David that no article that that journal had published had ever received so much attention. So kudos to David. His view of the fourth, or what he calls the religious wave, uh, which began in 79, as I mentioned, was that if it followed the pattern of the three predecessors, it would be over by 2025, a view he currently still believes in. I'll get back to that in a second. He believes that if the fourth wave is over, it would be followed by a fifth wave. He says it's hard to tell sometimes, because each preceding wave was stimulated by a great dramatic international transformation, which provokes a dramatic reaction from the younger generation, and that transformation has not occurred yet. I, I pushed back a little bit when I was talking to David about when he was mentioning this. I'm not so sure the religious wave is going to dissipate by 2025. I think it's very strong. We're now in the latter half of 2020. Al-Qaeda is still around. ISIS is still around. Boko Haram is still around. Al-Shabaab is still around. Jemaah Islami is still around. Hundreds of Islamist extremist groups are still around. You're seeing a development of a quasi-religious nature to some of the far-right terrorism. You're seeing sort of a almost a burgeoning of Christian extremism. You, have, of course, have Hindu extremism in India, which some would argue is ethno-nationalist. I argued it's largely religious, although I can see it being a little bit of both. So I'm not so sure I, I, I share David's, I don't know if optimism is the right word, uh, more analysis, I guess, that this particular wave of terrorism is going to end by 2025. So we had an interesting chat about that. He's still quite confident that it will, and uh, <laughs> for what it's worth. I really do hope that this wave of terrorism ends because I'm sick and freaking tired of talking about it and writing about it and publishing about it and thinking about it. And I'd like to kind of hand the baton over to somebody else to look at the fifth wave. I'm, however, not as sanguine or as optimistic uh, as David is in that regard, but watch this space. I could be giving a podcast to you if I'm still doing podcasting five years from now in which I announce that the fourth wave has ended and uh, I'm downing tools. But anyhow, we'll have to see what happens. I then asked him uh, what feedback, good and bad, has he received 
on this wave theory of terrorism. And he said, the feedback's been very good. He says, every Monday, he gets a notice from the research gate, I guess at UCLA, indicates that his work has been read between 300 and 70, 750 times that week. And that number is the highest in the history of the UCLA political science department. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, this wave theory dates 20 years old and people are still reading it to that number. That, that says something. He says, I don't know how many times my wave theory articles are being read, but I think they got the most attention. The four-wave theory, he says, has been cited many times, though he has no statistics. Strangely enough, there's been no criticism or amplification of the theory that I know of, partly because those who study or deal with terrorism have no interest in history. This is, this is an interesting point, and, and I have to concur with him in this regard. For those who follow me, you know that I, I do a series called Today in, Today in Terrorism, where every day I refer back to an event that took place sometime in the past and put it in context, make some comments on it. So I definitely see the, the whole thing to do with uh, history is really, really important. And, and David doesn't think a lot of people care what happened historically. I, I don't think he's wrong in that regard. We tend to focus very much on the present. We are a society of, of instant information and um, sadly, instant analysis, which I've, I've ranted against on many occasions. I'm sorry for all that. But we don't take into account enough what happened historically. And that's, that's to our detriment. So kudos on David for pointing that out. He knows that... <laughs> At the end of each wave, virtually everyone agrees that terrorism has ended. I'm thinking here of Fukuyama is the end of history note after the fall of the wall. For example, he says, in the 1933 edition of the Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences, the author of the interesting terrorism article concluded that we are now experiencing the end of this phenomenon. Well, the second wave was over. I guess started still going, which led to the third wave, which led to the fourth wave. So I think that that article was probably wrong. David adds that when the Soviet Union collapsed, the third wave terminated and the U.S. government decided terrorism was no longer relevant. It dropped all support to the RAND Corporation, the chief enterprise for terror studies. I'll get back to that in a second, too. And got rid of the federal employees dealing with the subject, a factor which helped explain our failure to deal with 9-11. There's a parallel here I do want to draw. And again, I've mentioned it before. You know, when I started my career in security intelligence in 1983, we were very much at the time at Communications Security Establishment, CSE, the Canadian Signals Intelligence or SIGIN organization. We were very much a Cold War organization. When the Cold War ended and uh, we won uh, in uh, quotation marks, we basically downed tools on worrying about Russia. And where are we now, 30 years later? With a, I won't call a, a risen Russia, I'll just call a pain in the ass Russia. You saw the reports about Russia hacking into Canadian medical centers trying to steal information on the corona, novel coronavirus vaccine. And he says the same thing happened after the fall of the Soviet Union. Is that they said terrorism just doesn't matter. We're not going to look at it anymore. Huh? Really, really interesting. I asked him whether he thought the wave theory is still pertinent. And he answered, he says, people often wonder what will happen when the fourth wave, which he says is clearly dissipating, on which I disagree with him, will disappear. Will we have a fifth wave? He notes that far-right terrorism is emerging all over the Western world, largely concerned with stopping immigration. But he says, ironically, that does not seem to be the work of the younger generation, which is a necessary feature. So in, in, in David's mind, in David's theorizing, it's the younger generation that creates the new waves. That's why it lasts every, every 40 years, which is a generalizer feature. He said, if the European Union disappears, the object of far-right politics in Europe, that could be, that, that could be the event. If the EU you know, disappears, he said, but we shall see. Of course, we will still experience domestic terrorist activity, even if a glo new global wave does not emerge. And this is a really, really important thing. If, we are, if the fourth wave, uh, A, if it ends, and that remains to be seen, and it's not followed by a fifth wave, it doesn't mean terrorism is going away. In the same way that some of the groups that 
one would classify as still first wave groups like the anarchists, like the Black Bloc, they're anarchists. They're part of the first wave that ended at the First World War. We still have anarchists. We still, of course, have anti-colonial groups like the IRA or the provisional IRA or the new IRA or the green IRA or the, I don't know, polka dot IRA, whatever they're calling themselves these days. The end of the wave doesn't mean the end of every terrorist group that participates in that form of terrorism. So even if we don't have a wave, you still have terrorism. Lastly, I asked him if there's any new project on the go. He says he's just completed the book that he's worked on for a decade. Wow. My heart goes out to him. It's called The History of Terrorism, The Four Global Waves and Their Predecessors. I am buying this book. I'm going to be the first person to buy this book, which he hopes will be published soon. In this book, the important predecessors of the four waves are discussed first. The terrorism in four religious traditions. So Judaism, Islam, Christianity, and Hinduism. He says that each religion produced special tactics. He said one topic he never studied before is the Christian Crusades, which he now sees as very important as it is still used to justify some contemporary Islamic terrorism. Absolutely. You don't have to read a lot of jihadi screed to hear the word crusader and references to crusader events that took place a millennium ago. So for the jihadis, it was all about the crusades. They're just kind of getting, getting their own back. In the new book, he discusses domestic local secular terror, largely produced by mobs for the global phenomenon. And then he, he says his focus is on two American successes, Sons of Liberty uh, and the KKK after the Civil War. Then he has, um, he devotes five chapters discussing the four waves and the final chapters deals with the fifth global wave of far-right terrorism. So that was my conversation with David. As I said, I was honored beyond belief that he agreed to join me. He truly is somebody whose thoughts and theories and ideas need to be taken into account. He is a pioneer of terrorism studies in the Western world. There's no other way of describing him. And for a man of 91, 91 years old, to be coming up with another book is phenomenal. He is truly an amazing intellectual character in the 20th and 21st centuries. And I was so, so honored and, and fortunate that he agreed to, to speak with me. Again, I wish you could hear his voice for yourself, but because of technical reasons, it didn't happen. Before I end, though, I do want to make a little comment. In recent months, I've been criticized by some people for being anti-academic. They say, oh, you, Gursky, you're ex-security service, you know, Neanderthal, sloping forehead, dragging knuckles kind of guy. You don't get it that academics have all the answers and you dismiss us and you don't think we're very important and, you know, you, you ridicule our work and, and you ignore us and all that kind of stuff. I call bullshit on that for the following reason. I have a tremendous deal of respect for many academics that work in terrorism. And I have interviewed many of them for this podcast. You probably heard my interview with Bruce Hoffman, another giant of the 20th and 21st centuries in terrorism. I have an upcoming broadcast with uh, Brian Jenkins, the third giant of terrorism studies in the Western world. Brian's been doing terrorism as long as David Rappaport has for 50 years. It's not academics I have the problem with. It's certain academics who claim to be experts in terrorism who are nothing of the sort. They don't have any bona fides. They don't have any data. They don't have anything worth reading as far as I'm concerned. And it's those academics that I criticize. There's no data. There's no real anything to hang your hat on. It's all theorizing. I can give a rat's ass about theorizing when it comes to terrorism. This, David's work isn't a theory. It's real. It's based on facts. So for those of you who think that I, just because I'm not an academic, that I poo-poo academic work, you're full of shit. I don't. I have the greatest respect for, for David, for, for, for Brian Jenkins, for Bruce Hoffman, for Thomas Hegheimer, who, whom I also interviewed a couple months ago for a podcast. I think these people are making phenomenal contributions to our understanding of terrorism worldwide. 
and I would drop anything to go and listen to them speak, or maybe in the COVID-19 era, go online to hear them speak and, and, have, a, and have a chat with them. When this all clears, I'd, I'd buy them a beer in a heartbeat. These are great men and women who have done some great work. Mia Bloom at Georgia State University, a fellow Canadian. I've also interviewed her. I just don't think that all academics are worth listening to any more than all ex-practitioners are worth listening to. And many people think, I'm not worth listening to. And that's entirely your judgment. I just hope that going forward, I continue to find interesting individuals to interview. I've got a few more lined up in the, in the coming weeks of some uh, practitioners that I think have interesting views on terrorism. And I'll present those to you in this podcast. And I'd love to hear what you think. Have you had any exposure to the wave theory of terrorism? Do you follow David Rappaport? Drop me some feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com, or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on Facebook and on LinkedIn. If you like this content and want to get it sent to you automatically, go to my website, www.borealisrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. Give me your email address. We get a daily digest free of charge every morning. Today in Terrorism series, longer podcasts such as this and the Taliban Link of Terrorism, the Quick Hits podcasts, which are shorter in nature, media interviews, other blogs, etc., etc. I'd love to get your feedback, as well as your ideas for other people to talk to. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. Thank you.